This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 6, 2020, the most abusive and destructive edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., where I am sick as a dog. So if I sound low energy, Jeb Bush-like low energy, attribute it to that. Joining me from New York is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Well, hello, hello, hello. And from the campus of Yale University, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hi, Emily. Hey. On today's GabFest, the debacle of the Iowa caucuses and what that debacle means for the Democratic presidential race and for the general election even. Then the president is acquitted in an extraordinary vote in the Senate. Mitt Romney casts an unprecedented vote to convict him on one of the counts that he was impeached for. Plus, we'll talk about that spectacle of the State of the Union. There was so much going on on Capitol Hill this week. And then another despicable change to immigration policy brought to you by the Trump administration. We'll talk about it. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. So Iowa, Monday night. It's generally true that anything in life you think you're going to fix with technology, you are going to mess up with technology. You're going to make it worse, at least for a time. Early technology is almost always bad. Political technology is almost especially bad because basically you use it once every four years and use it one time and then it becomes obsolete because you don't need it again for four years, at which point the technology is completely shifted. And thus, we get the Iowa caucuses, an exercise in democracy ruined in every possible way. The time of thousands of volunteers and staffers and voters all wasted. The time of candidates wasted. Everything botched because they made the election more complex by trying to solve for three numbers instead of one number, as they had in the past, and then com- complicated that with a massive failure of an untested, cruddy technology. A technology that was designed really to prevent one problem, which was Russian hacking, and instead they can create a much worse problem problem, which is complete fucking incompetence. So uh, it is a sad, shameful moment, Emily. What have we learned? What have we learned? There should never have been an app is one thing we've learned. Like this just seemed uh, completely unnecessary in retrospect. And, you know, look, like in the longer run, all that really matters is that the results are accurate and that we trust them. But I think the delay Uh, gave people who are already skeptical about fairness and worrying about elections being rigged um, reason to doubt, and that was super unhelpful. Uh, The theater of the moment was completely botched, which is bad for the Democrats. They're supposed to be presenting themselves as competent and uh, masters of technology, and they failed in that regard. And then I think also the results of the outcome are muted. I mean, we still don't have the absolutely final results, right? I was going to make a joke that they put this on the slow train for us because they knew we taped on Thursday. And so they were going to release the results right before our taping. But I don't think we even really know. It seems like Sanders might win or Buttigieg might win. 
And I guess the headline results-wise is that they are way ahead of Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar. But it all got a little muffled and confused. I'd I'd like to stand up for the... uh just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, there's nothing. <laughs> oh man, that yeah. was a good no, job. No, I, I mean was it was the, it was the kickoff of the uh, of the delegate uh, selection process, and they shanked it. And uh, what Emily says is true. It's the app. But then what what intrigues me is that there was also, and there's a great book uh, about what I'm about to talk about called Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. And and it, it talks about complexity and how complexity causes failure and why it causes failure. Because one of the other things that people who've looked at the what happened in Iowa say is that um, all of the reform efforts made to instill greater transparency and give three different results, um, first round of voting, realignment voting, and then final uh, delegate apportionment, um, added complexity to the process. And and so the, the large, huge question that I'm interested in is, um, as David, you were saying earlier, our, our reliance on technology, our quick fix um, uh, the quick fix attractiveness of technology um, can sometimes make solutions more complicated. And how is this an example of that? And if so, why so? And then the second thing is, it does seem to me to be an echo of of a lot of the way we think about politics, which is that these reforms and the and the and the interjection of technology were all made in good faith and for the best possible reasons and with good intentions, but that. Obviously, the follow-through was where things fell apart. And that's basically what happens in campaigns. Candidates come out, make a lot of good-intentioned, well-intentioned, have a lot of great technocratic ideas, and then we never test, really, whether in implementation they either have the experience to do it or whether it's possible to implement what um, what was done. So in that way, it seems to echo the larger way we talk about things in campaigns. So perhaps the... The more alarming fact for Democrats, besides the total incompetence of the conduct of the actual election, was the rather low turnout. It seems as though Iowa Democratic voters did not get too enthused, were not there in huge numbers. Uh, Emily, is that something the Democrats should worry about as much as they're worrying about the fact that they botched their opening act? Oh, more, I think. Um, The one last thing I want to say about the botched opening act is as someone who opposes Iowa having this outsized role and thinks that is just way too much power for this, for any one state, but especially uh, an almost entirely white state, I hope this is the end of um, Iowa going first. I will just say that once. Yeah, I think the low turnout is a problem. And um, right now, it just feels like this Democratic field is kind of weak. I think people are worried, not about the policy proposals coming out of it. I mean, that part of the discussion has been really interesting and varied and robust. But this question of, like, which of these candidates is really going to get momentum behind them, can unify the party, can bring in independence and defeat Donald Trump, I think that feels to a lot of voters like it's really unclear. And so you're seeing a lot of division and kind of factions and fracturing. And uh, if that continues for a long time, that is going to be dangerous for the Democrats and their chances of winning in November. So there was that same theory about the Republicans in 2016, John, and that Trump had come in and, and represented this whole strange out there group of people who other 
candidates in the field didn't want to be even associated with. And yet when push came to shove, it, the, the party loyalty plus the new group of voters Trump brought in way swamped or for, for electoral college's purposes, way swamped the lost never Trump folks who were disgusted by what he did. Can Democrats hope for something similar? That when push comes to sub, they will basically unify around yeah. the party and that the, the marginal new voters will be valuable enough to get them a win. I think so. And we'll go through that in a second. I think whenever you're having to make excuses for low turnout, you're in, in bad shape. You know, So if you have low turnout across several different uh, contests in several different states, then that's a more clear signal about the worry Democrats have to have about, about the enthusiasm in their party. To your larger question, it seems to me that question feeds into the larger one in the Democratic Party right now, which is what kind of candidate do you want? And is there a sort of blunt force power to a Sanders candidacy um, that over that creates the kind of dynamic you're talking about, David. But there are other uh, things that Democrats can can count on, at least at some level, which is that that their best turnout mechanism uh, or one of their best turnout mechanisms is the president, who on Thursday morning was attacking Democrats at the National Prayer Breakfast, um, a, a venue that where where uh, presidents traditionally don't do that kind of thing, um, and also in the way the president is responding to Nancy Pelosi at the State of the Union and so forth, is a base motivating mechanism for Democrats. Will that be enough? Will that be enough in the proper states? I don't know, but they Democrats still have that going for them as they as they go through what will be several months of really tough tearing each other uh, apart and then the question will be and i'll shut up after this is does the base of the democratic party behave like the base in the republican party donald trump in one of his um really ex- uh, one of the great things he's been able to accomplish for himself is changing the basic values of the most ardent supporters in the party um so that they now support him for example at the prayer breakfast he's likely to be forgiven for behaving in a way that's um, inconsistent with the moment because of who he is. Um, he's done that on a whole host of issues. Would the same kind of thing happen in the Democratic Party if the base of the party, if a nominee was was very different than the base of the party, would they all realign, not just to vote for the person, but realign their fundamental underlying values uh, in concert with the, with the person who's at the top of the ticket? But wait a minute. Do Democrats want a candidate who is going to ask them to fundamentally realign their values? Like, why... Why is that a good idea? That's essentially what um, some voters did in the Republican Party for the purposes of defeating Hillary Clinton. You would sublimate your values if they were in conflict with the nominee for the purposes of defeating Donald Trump. So would a Democratic – would the Democratic base be as transactional as the Republican base has been? And then would it stick beyond the election as we've seen it not only stick but but gain greater adherence to President Trump? I mean just among the many things that the State of the Union was that the Republican Party stood and and applauded for um, basically a new entitlement for family uh, leave, which used to be antithetical to the um, Republican point of view. But he's – so he's changed the party in – so many different ways. That's a t- teeny tiny way. But um, that's that's what I'm talking about. I think the the problem for Democrats, which is if you posit a Sanders nomination, uh, who because he is the one who's most like Trump, hypothetically, in this, uh, the marginal extra voter that Trump added in 2016 was a very valuable extra voter. It was a kind of rust belt person. It was somebody in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, who may have been a Democratic voter in the past and and a labor union member and who just kind of 
something and Trump drew them. And that turned out to be extreme. Those votes turned out to be extremely valuable. I don't know that the marginal extra voter that Sanders is going to add is going to have the same electoral college value. I'm not sure that it's a suburban mom in Florida who's going to be drawn in by Sanders. I think you're going to you. I think it's very possible you'll get a huge number of people who are drawn in who are Americans and whose vote should count, but they will exist in states which Democrats are already going to win or already going to lose, not these marginal states. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the map, there definitely seems a risk of that. And then you have this kind of counter question, which is, will the Bernie supporters get excited, come around, do the sublimating and transactional thinking John was talking about if Biden or Buttigieg or Klobuchar is the nominee or even Warren, who they've been going after? Do do you, uh, John, do you think that the Iowa results, and I use that word loosely in wild quotes, uh, do you think they actually reshape the dynamics of the race? Is it really now a Buttigieg-Sanders race? Is there, is Biden out of it? Is Warren out of it? Is Bloomberg, has Bloomberg just gotten a huge bump, which makes him actually viable under certain scenarios? Or, or really, it's just too soon to, to guess any of that. Uh, I, I do think it does allow some preliminary um, uh, conclusions. I would add just one tiny thing. I think the way you framed it with Sanders is right. I think the the way for any Democrat it's going to work is if you draw in new voters of one sort and then are not so objectionable that you scare away suburban Republican women who may not turn out for you, but they are inclined not to turn out for Donald Trump. So the the, the question then is how the nominee sorts on on those two grounds. I think when you come in fourth and you're the and you're the front runner, that's very bad. So it's bad for Joe Biden. Um, and the the good case for Joe Biden is if he can fight back, um, then he becomes a candidate who won it on his own terms, not just because it's his. Um, because it's his turn. And presumably following that hypothetical, he will have done something in the winning it back and the fighting back, like Hillary Clinton's moment after she lost in Iowa and came back in New Hampshire, where there will be a moment, everybody will fix on the moment, they will stuff that moment full of things that they find appealing about the candidate, and it might reset the terms of the of the race. That's the, you know, the optimal case. But it's you're in tough shape when you're in fourth and you've had people asking sort of you've been dogged by questions of the whole campaign. Obviously it's good for Buttigieg and Sanders. There are a lot of there are a lot of Sanders conspiracy theories about the about the the, the outcome of the um of Iowa and so forth, but I mean, um, you know, he's the he's the winner of his lane, and um, and it seems like uh, Warren has got a tougher, you know, she plateaued in Iowa, and then even though she was given the Des Moines Register endorsement, which has helped in the past with candidates, hasn't been determinative, but it's been helped. It didn't help her enough. Neither did the New York Times endorsement. So he seems to be cleaning his lane up, which is one of the prerequisites for getting the nomination. So I think he's in great shape. And then, you know, the big challenge for Buttigieg is in is in Nevada and South Carolina. And uh, so I, I think it clarified a, a, a fair amount of the race and and um, and set up, uh, you know, a new a new dynamic for um, for the ultimate winnowing. I feel like if the Democrats come together, we're going to look back on this as this divisive moment that passed, or it's going to be the moment that augurs what the rest of the campaign is like, right? Because Bernie cleaning up his lane, we are also seeing some of his supporters really 
I mean, one poll in January found that only 53 percent of current Sanders supporters say that they're going to definitely support the eventual Democratic nominee, even if it's not Sanders, which if you, you know, care about the kinds of issues of justice and equality that Bernie's running on just seems nuts, right? Like outcome wise, it just does not make a whole lot of sense. Um, You have to believe that, you know, we're better off like as a country going in the very opposite direction, that somehow like that extreme extreme, um, result is going to boomerang back in your favor. Um, In any kind of other universe, it just doesn't hold up. And then you have this division between Biden and Buttigieg and still Klobuchar. But like, so the the choice, if you're in that lane, is between someone who is young and untested and has currently almost no support from African-American voters, a very important constituency, and then this older guy who looks shaky, who's like, you know, bombed out before in similar circumstances. It It just, like, it's hard to see how this all comes together right now. I want to... Uh, end, I think, on just one point about the caucuses. So I have not been to the caucuses. I've never caucused, but I did watch a lot of it on television. One thing that really struck me was, first of all, it's clear that having those three numbers that they had to report was just a nightmare, that it's just way too complicated for anyone to have to deal with that and to have to keep track of that. That's number one. Number two is those groups were too big to be managed in any kind of reasonable way. There's good organizational theory about the size of a company that can st- function really well. And and you generally, I think it's that once you get up to about 75, a company functions well. And then over 75, all kinds of crazy stuff has to happen. And that's why you end up with HR departments uh, because – the, the you need to set up much more strict rules and much more strict organization. And looking at those groups of hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, wandering around gyms, you're like, of course they can't keep track of it. Of course the thing is going to be a, a nightmare. Of course they don't. There's not trust in this room. And it really uh, – it, it just makes me think like, OK, you can do a caucuses, but you're going to have to keep those groups very small or you just have to do some other system entirely because, because that size group – with that much personal handholding, much personal touch, much much move, and that much movement around is not tenable. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the Gabfest and other Slate podcasts. Today in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about George Packer's fascinating essay about Christopher Hitchens and about the role of the writer in contemporary America. Really, really thought provoking essay. Go to slate.com/gabfest plus to join today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off 
plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mitt Romney said on Wednesday, corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. That speech capped a remarkable week on Capitol Hill, a week that began with the president's or began on Tuesday with the president's State of the Union address, which had campaign rally chants and reality TV drama and an amazing exchange of mutual cutting behavior from the president and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, followed on Wednesday with an impeachment vote in the Senate that was significantly more dramatic than expected because all Democrats lined up to convict the president of both counts that he was impeached with in the uh, in the House. And Mitt Romney, a Republican, joined the Democrats in voting to remove Trump from office on one of the counts. And he's the only senator in the history of the United States to vote to remove from office a president of his own party, which is amazing. So, John, Democrats, I think, are trying to make a big deal out of Romney's historic vote. Is it as important as they want to make it out? Will it be forgotten in moments? If it is important, why is it important? It's a good question. I think it can be important without it being beneficial to Democrats, um, although it is a bit of a, you know, it could potentially be a booby prize for Democrats if things go poorly. I mean, the way it works out well for Democrats is that um, ultimately the president does something or something comes out that proves that the case was, um, for those who need more proving, that it was worth uh, pursuing. So if that if people come to that conclusion when future shoes drop, if they were to drop, then the Democrats are in fine shape. The bad, the, the bad shape they would be in is if people think they wasted all their time and aren't talking about the kind of stuff that they care about in their lives. And that's certainly when you talk to people out on the campaign trail and every all the reporting comes back, nobody wants to talk about impeachment in the Democratic race. They want to talk about issues that affect their lives. So in that case, the impeachment, if it doesn't, if things in the future don't turn out in any way that ratifies the adventure, then um, then it seems like a big waste of time and Romney's not going to rescue that. I think it's interesting for you, the historical point you made, and then here is a person standing up for a set of standards and beliefs that they believe in, come what may, and we don't see that much um, in politics now. Now, he's uh, a political actor acting in a political context, so then even the no- notion of virtue has to be uh, given an asterisk because in, you know, all politicians take actions in their lives to maximize their power and in doing so are sometimes engaged in activity that would not be the kind that you would expect your priest to be engaged in. But relative to the other kind of behavior we see in political life, this was uh, an outlier. And, and one of the reasons we know it was an outlier is that we saw the behavior of other Republicans who fear the power of President Trump's constituency. One of the things that removes Romney from that power is that Utah is a different state than most of the other ones, and he has a a special relationship with his voters and constituency. I think the final point that interested me about Romney is having covered him um, eight years ago— 
I spent some time with um, a number of elders and and um, officials in the Mormon Church talking about the the Mormon process of discernment and using the religion to make decisions. And there is a tradition of looking at all the decisions in your life, and and all religions have this, but people don't practice it as thoroughly maybe as they do in the Mormon Church. And and so um, I wrote a piece about it for Slate, actually, and Clayton Christensen, who just passed away recently, was one of the people I talked to about the process that Romney now in, in defending his vote says he went through. It's a part of his life and a part of his, his uh, experience. And so that, just from a human standpoint, um, was also interesting to me. Emily, do you, do you agree with John that it is not necessarily a a defined blessing for the Democrats uh, who lost this vote by, badly and who did not succeed in removing the president despite having impeached him. Well, nobody thought that they were going to win. Uh, and I think getting one Republican vote takes away a talking point. It also trains some of um, the sort of Trump train fury on a Republican, which, you know, it's probably minimally helpful to the Democrats. I think it's just more one of those moments that feel increasingly few and far between where you see someone actually make a hard decision and come down against his own tribe. I mean, Romney did this pretty remarkable interview with um, Mark Leibovitz for The Times and said to Mark, you know, I would have much rather voted with my team. Like, who wouldn't? And that's been such a powerful force for Republicans, which is completely imaginable. I mean, it is always hard to go against the people who are you see as, like, your people. So, you know, I feel like it sort of stands there as this testament. Um, but I don't think it's going to have some bigger uh, political, you know, ramification or wave or implication. And I think Romney's going to get punished for it in the party. And, you know, the lesson of this week for Trump is that you can be vengeful and angry and enraged and you can also reach out beyond your base. I mean, one thing about Trump that's so distinctive, I think, and interesting is how he gives all these mixed signals at once. So he's his you know, rousing rally red meat self for his base. And then he makes a Super Bowl ad about letting, you know, an older black woman out of prison. It's an ad that, like, is appealing maybe to the black community or maybe to, you know, white voters who want to see themselves as somewhat sympathetic to the concerns of African-Americans. His State of the Union is also um, sprinkled with um, outreach to, you know, Black people to claiming to care about the concerns of all Americans, equality, like not things that his policies stand for. But there's this way in which his inconsistencies are um, are smart, I think. And I wonder if there's something in there for Democrats to learn from, because it seems I don't know, John, I feel like the usual message in politics is you're supposed to be really consistent and say one thing all the time. And Trump says eight million things and it seems to work for him. Well, in his approval rating in the Gallup poll was as high as it's ever been at forty nine, which is not which is not so great, but still high as it's ever been. Now there's a very good chance, um, and I say this not just with respect to, but when you have a single poll that's an outlier right. after consistent, uh, you you should be super careful about it. So let's um, it's worth noting, but not putting too much too many chips on that. Um, 
I think that one of his successes in politics has been to be a thorough and constant destabilizing force um, on all the traditional notions, one of them being that you have to be consistent. Um, I think that ad during the Super Bowl and the tableau and the use of the State of the Union in a new way to turn it into a reality show where prizes were given away was politically extremely effective. He either is trying to get votes, secure his voters, or undermine and destabilize the other team by either weakening their uh, march to the polls against him or baiting them, and we should talk about briefly Nancy Pelosi's reaction, baiting them into behavior that then uh, Republicans can take umbrage at, um, which just kind of, again, destabilizes the, the situation. So it is, I think what's interesting about those two things you mentioned and the tableau he created in the State of the Union was not that he is putting the power of his office towards effective policy for those constituencies, but that he sees um, appealing to a broader constituency than he has appealed to as president so far as a part of his reelection. Now, again, whether he's trying to gain votes or destabilize the votes of the other side, we'll have to see. Um, but it gives you some indication of his sense of what the shape of the electorate looks like and, and how he reads. It's why I always think this the, the attack on the Bidens is so interesting by the president because it's an act of punditry. I mean, he basically decided Joe Biden was his biggest threat. So I think this is indicative of his of, of how he sees the electorate uh, going into this next one. Here, here's what I don't understand is, and you could see this at the State of the Union. It was a remarkable theatrical event. Uh, as a as a believer in, that the State of the Union should be revived and and improved, I was a I thought Trump did a great job. It was really good from a theater perspective. You get a Medal of Freedom. You get a scholarship. You get your husband back. You get a country. Um, it was it was really, really well done. And I think probably I mean, nobody really watches this State of the Union. It doesn't end up being popular or not popular. But it did show you a picture of how easy it would be if he were just a different person to run a very straightforward, the economy is great, we're, uh, we're fixing these immig- this immigration and act a teeny bit presidential. And I think he'd be running away with it. I actually think what's weird is that all of his meddling, all of his chaos hasn't really helped him. It hasn't benefited him. People say like, oh, now he's going to be emboldened to mess with the election. Well, his messing with the election, I think, relatively has hurt him compared to where he would be if had he just stayed out of it and just coasted on the stuff that's going well. Uh, I mean, I know he is he is physiologically incapable of doing that, but it is it's an interesting counterfactual to imagine what kind of approval ratings he'd have if he were a president who behaved even 10% more like a regular president. I don't know. I mean, he may very well be partially responsible for Joe Biden sliding around in the polls. So if you think of his gain as just being the Democrats' loss, it looks more effective. And I guess the second just obvious point is like Trump wants attention. And to do that, you have to be – angry and impulsive and rash in your style of entertainment as well as presidential. Like, you can't just give out the prizes. You also have to blast away at the people you see as your enemies. That's how you get the most attention. Can I just make a a little point about the actual, you know, where we come down now here at the end of this process? Um, So Mitch McConnell went to the floor of the Senate and said basically the system worked, which is the partisan abuse of power in the House by launching these articles of impeachment has been knocked back by the Senate, and that's the way the framers designed it. 
So then there's the opposite question, which is the president, you know, when the House, when when his def- his legal team stood up, they talked a lot about how the House hadn't followed the process. And that's what basically Mitch McConnell was saying, which is they didn't follow the process and there was a bad outcome as a result. Well, also, who didn't follow the process? The president. He didn't follow the process with respect to Ukraine policy, so much so that about 20 different people, including John Bolton and others who've been career diplomats and career officials, were so thrown off by the process, they basically pulled the emergency break. He also didn't follow the process with respect to investigating the behavior of a U.S. citizen, whether it's Hunter Biden or Joe Biden. So he didn't follow the process twice, and it turns out that a number of Republican senators, even though they voted not to impeach him, nevertheless said what he did was shameful and wrong and inappropriate. So how in the American system at the end of this do you handle a president who Republicans say did things that are shameful, wrong, and inappropriate, and who at least one Republican senator thinks should be impeached for it, if... What's this? What's the mechanism, and and would that mechanism, if you name it, and it's something short of impeachment, who administers that mechanism when you have a party in the majority in the Senate who displayed such adhesion to their president, renewed adhesion in this process? Like, what? How do you do that? Now, people would say, well, you you have an election. Okay, what if this happens in the first? two months of a presidency. You have to wait three years before the checks on the president's work out. So I'm intrigued about the answers to all those questions. I don't think we have answers. I think we lost our answer. I mean, I think impeachment has always been a problematic mechanism because of the two-thirds vote, because people don't have an interest, senators don't have an interest in voting against their party, and it's hard for Congress to effectively investigate. And now that's been proved... um, Doubly, like we saw that with the Clinton impeachment, and now we're seeing it with the Trump impeachment. And I think that even if Congress continues to pick up this tool, it's it's weakened. The answer is yes, elections. And then <laughs> I guess the thing that's maybe worth seeing to pick up on your point, John, is that when the Senate marches behind the president and when there is a part of the media that does the same thing, it's all mutually reinforcing. And so the voters get the message that this doesn't really matter. Like, it's not dramatic enough to be the thing that you decide your vote on. I bet there are not very many people in November who are going to say that, you know, Trump's abuse of power is what is making the difference for them one way or the other. Unless they affirmatively decide it's a good thing, the abuse of power, you know, which is certainly possible, which is to say they don't frame it as abuse of power, but they like the kind of damn the torpedoes approach that he's that he's taken to the office. Um, yeah, and they like the fact that the economy is humming along. I mean, that just like we can't underestimate yeah, yeah. that. Can I one other thing I was talking about the adhesion of his party. One thing that has not been very sticky is um is anybody holding on to his actual defense of his behavior? I mean, even his national security uh, advisor, Robert O'Brien, said, oh, no, the president didn't say anything about the Bidens. He was just interested in corruption. He said this this week. Obviously, there are multiple statements the president said after the ele- uh, this was being investigated that, in fact, he wanted Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. And so that's just one of the ends. And this has happened in other ways. Secretary of State Pompeo has done the same thing in which p- the people who are even defending the president don't sign up for the full defense. In fact, they deny the defense that the president himself is engaged in. Susan Collins, in defending her vote against impeachment, said she thought the president had learned something. The president then told reporters he was meeting with on the day of the State <laughs> of the Union, there's nothing to learn. It was a perfect phone call. So you have a situation in which, um, I mean, I, people will say, well, of course, but it is still striking how even the people defending the president don't 
sign up for the defenses that he's using for himself. And you would think that gap would cause some issues, but um, apparently everybody's agreed to not let it cause issues. The Trump administration expanded the number of nations covered by its travel ban, the travel ban that was known as the Muslim travel ban to begin with. Uh, Ultimately, the Supreme Court let it go, let it go into effect after the Trump administration put some cover on it by including some non-Muslim nations in the ban. But now this week, they have dragooned other countries in. Nigeria, Eritrea, Tanzania, Sudan, Kyrgyzstan, and Myanmar are now all countries where you cannot get a visa to come move to the United States, come work in the United States. This is, of course, the latest in the Trump administration's efforts to choke off immigration to the U.S. from basically countries the president doesn't like, countries with brown people and black people and Muslims. So, Emily, Nigerian immigrants, of which there are 345,000 in the United States, are more likely to have college degrees than American-born Americans. Nigeria is the largest economy in Africa. There are thousands of families that seek to be reunited, where there's one member of the family here in the United States and another or several back home in Nigeria. So uh, is this a defensible policy? No, it's not a defensible policy. It feels like there's this racist stereotype about Africans and like the president doesn't care to look beyond it. I mean, he made these crazy statements. And then you have Stephen Miller, like this empowered Trump official who's been there from the beginning. And I think we're seeing him get better and better at working the internal bureaucracy and the rulemaking process to accomplish this goal of reducing immigration from places in the world with brown and black people in hopes of preserving as long as possible America's white majority. I mean, it sounds stark to say it that way, but like that has been (laughs) what looked like was happening from the beginning when you go back and you look at things Stephen Miller said long ago when he was working for Jeff Sessions, when Jeff Sessions was trying to reduce legal immigration, he was the sole vote on his Senate committee for doing that. Like not one single Republican went along with that. Like now it is official U.S. government policy and Miller seems to be very much in control. The ostensible reason for this new ban is a kind of lack of security, a lack of information sharing, that the Nigerians and the other countries don't do a good job enough with their passport technology. Uh, One tell that this is all made up is that there's been exactly one Nigerian who's been implicated in any kind of terror plot since uh, 1975. So Nigeria is implicated. Compared with many Saudis. Yeah, like Saudi. How many Saudis have been implicated? It is. It's obviously also terrible. another tell is that we didn't stop visiting from Nigeria, only immigrating. Which, if you were really worried about like some terrorist threat, you wouldn't let people show up here for supposedly right. brief stays either. And so, so go ahead, well, and I would just add when the when the first travel ban was uh, being implemented and, and policies were being designed to. Um, in this range of policies, the Department of Homeland Security put out a report, it said, that proved that immigrants and, and foreigners were creating all of this terrorism in America. And the report was roundly debunked, pilloried, stomped on, and just for its um, methodological foolishness. But then also, secondly, when you look at, at where the mass casualty events have taken place in America in the period of the last many years, they've been from U.S. citizens. So it was it was wrong on that account, too. If you were taking a purely security approach to, to who comes into the country, you can't obviously kick people out who were born here. So it is a terrible, it is a terrible idea. Yeah, they'll get into that. 
And we'll get to that. It is a terrible idea, um, but there's n- very little that's going to happen because this is not a big electoral issue. Democrats, in fact, the Democratic presidential candidates are not really talking about immigration very much. I think they realize that while it is a uh, appalling public policy and immoral what we're doing, especially around refugees and asylum seekers, it's not a winning issue. Um, there's also the economic piece of this, which is this is a squeeze on the world economy. Nigeria is a very big economy and it's the biggest economy in Africa. And we've effectively just given a gift to China. China is making huge inroads in Africa and also Central Asia and also Southeast Asia, all the places where we've now banned uh, immigration. China's already has advantages. It's already doing well without our help, but just further alienating the thriving entrepreneurial economic classes of these countries of Eritrea and Nigeria and Tanzania and encouraging giving them a encouragement to basically go work with Chinese instead is seems like a stupid idea. Seems destructive and and bad. But you, they don't care. Well, and the you Trump administration doesn't care. And you have a lot of Republicans who who make that case, not not Trump Republicans, but um, who make the economic benefits of immigration case um, and haven't been listened to. Um, I think on the political point that you were making, David, I, it, it'll be interesting if that holds. Um, I think it has every poten- uh, potential to hold that Democrats don't make a big fight out of immigration because – they might be able to fight President Trump to a draw, but all the time they spend on that turf is time they're not spending on turf that's more naturally beneficial to Democrats. Um, and so it just isn't um, – and, and, and there will be Democrats who say this is a moral – this being the whole t- set of issues related to immigration is a moral outrage and you should speak more about it. Um, and yet strategically – um, it's probably better for, in a contest against Donald Trump, a better for the Democratic nominee to spend their time on issues that are both naturally cons- good for Democrats and ones in which they have the facility to, to, to trip him up and, and wind him up on, say, something like health care. I was talking to Caitlin Dickerson, an immigration reporter at The Times this week, and she was Any saying relationship that the to big John? difference— No, only, I don't think only so. I, that I associate myself with highly skilled journalists. Yeah, she's really good at her job. She was saying that the big difference between Obama's immigration policy and Trump's, if I have this right, is that under Obama in the last few years when he was trying to back away from his label as deporter in chief, if you were in the country and, you know, you got pulled in um, for potential deportation, they had to have a really good reason to deport you. The sort of presumption was that unless you had committed a serious crime or there was some uh, something else egregious going on, you were going to get to stay. Now the presumption is reversed. There has to be like a big push in the newspapers or some big campaign mounted individually on your behalf in order for you not to be deported. And that just seems like – a good way of capturing what's going on. And then the question becomes, okay, well, this is having a huge impact on a lot of people, but they're not voters. They're not citizens. They're not necessarily connected um, intimately to groups of people who do vote. And so you're asking Americans to extend like real empathy and political capital to people whose predicament is not one they share. And maybe there's just some like failure of imagination there. That is just really hard for Democrats to surmount. I'm sounding so pessimistic today. I kind of feel that way. Oh, it's such a pessimistic time. Yeah. But hey, let's go to cocktail chatter. <laughs> 
when you're trying to get a, a liquid liquid courage pick me up uh, to make you feel less pessimistic, John, what are you going to be chattering? My uh, chatter is about a new book by Eitan Hirsch called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism. And I've just started reading it, but it's very well argued and and powerful. And it basically makes the case that hobbyism is a serious threat to democracy. And what hobbyism is, is basically hanging out on Twitter and being outraged all the time, but not doing um, the hard work and focused work that well-meaning citizens can do to, to actually pursue power. And that if you don't pursue power, you're just, you know, you're just playing around in the backyard and not doing anything useful. And so that for somebody who's got a, a goal they want to reach, you know, all of your complaining on Twitter isn't doing anything. And then secondly, you're creating a market for politicians to basically play to the crowd. And the crowd they're playing to is the political hobbyist crowd, um, which is, again, detached from kind of reality. Um, anyway, it's a good it's a good and well-argued book. I've been uh, enjoying it and, um, and recommend it to everybody. Um, as I would also recommend, while we're in this, uh, Ezra Klein's book, um, Why We're Polarized, and also A Time to Build by Yuval Levin, both of which I'm also reading. They're both very good books about institutions and systems and why and how they drive our behavior in ways that even our presidents can't and our lawmakers can't break because of the systemic... Um, uh, kind of uh, ruts we're in. Emily, what's your chatter? My chatter is about this crazy story. The Department of Homeland Security says that it's suspending the global entry and trusted travel programs for New York residents because New York passed a law in which they made it easier for undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses and said that their DMV can't share criminal records with ICE. I mean, this is just rank political retaliation, right? Like, of course, there is a way to continue to verify the identities of New Yorkers. People have passports um, if they need to show that they're American citizens in in order to qualify for these programs. And it's just I'm struck by the breathtaking nature of selective federalism. So it's supposed to be that states have lots of authority to set their own policy. That's been a deeply held conservative principle for low these many decades. And yet now when blue states are using that power to do things that cut against the Trump administration, they get punished. I mean, it's true about the California emissions laws. Now it's going to screw over a whole bunch of, you know, mostly probably wealthy, well-connected New Yorkers who wanted to get through airports more smoothly. So in that sense, it's sort of diabolical genius, um, leaving Governor Cuomo kind of gnashing his teeth and talking about his legal options. So I don't know, maybe there'll be some litigation over this, but kind of amazing. My chatter, because, uh, football season is over. The NCAA tournament is, NCAA basketball tournament is several weeks away. The NBA and the NHL are in their midseason doldrums. Uh, and I just want to give you an alert. If you, you might not be a soccer fan. If you are a soccer fan, what I'm about to tell you will not be news. But if you are not a soccer fan, uh, there's a chance to witness a world historically great soccer season right now in the English Premier League. Liverpool, which is a historic great team, has not won the Premier League title in 30 years, never won the Premier League title, in fact. And it's on an epic run. And they, they may be the best soccer team that's ever been they haven't lost a game in more than a year in the league, which is the best league in the world. And it's not that they're drawing their games. They're just winning game after game. 
there, no team has ever been so far ahead in the standings as Liverpool. They also won the Champions League, which is the, the Super Bowl of world soccer, which is a kind of all Europe, best teams in Europe play. And they are just beautiful to watch. So if you've ever been tempted to say, like, hey, you know what, I should watch some soccer. Uh, the year to watch is now, the team to watch is Liverpool, because it's never been played so well and so beautifully and to such great effect. Listeners, you have given us great chatters again this week. Please tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest, something that you're chattering about in your home. And I want to call attention to a chatter from John Hendog at at TurkeyFunk. And John points to a BBC article about a South African plant called Specboom, which is a succulent. It's a small uh, succulent. And apparently, speckboom used to grow in huge quantities in southern Africa. There was a one thicket that was the size of cypress. And it is an incredible carbon dioxide uh, uh, sucker. It just it, it absorbs a huge amount of carbon dioxide, much more than other plants that require more work. So there's a lot of work to plant trees. President Trump announced the One Tree in Tree initiative that the U.S. would be joining it. And, of course, planting trees is great. We need more trees, too. But speckboom is is it's much cheaper it's much easier you can get much more bang for your buck in planting it and it's it's drought resistant and so there's this uh article in the bbc about how maybe this is this is another way we can pull out some of the co2 that we're throwing into the air every day if you enjoy the GabFest, maybe you enjoyed it please subscribe to the GabFest. we need your subscriptions It's very helpful for us. You will get new episodes the second they're published. So wherever you're listening to us, you have the ability, I'm sure, to subscribe to the show. So you get it every week right when it comes out. Please do that. It helps us. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, a team of everybody. The whole world helped me here in Washington today. It's a list of it. It's a a list as long as the Democratic candidates of people who helped me in Washington. So I'm actually not even going to say it because it's too long a list. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who is helping you, John Dickerson, Alan Pang. Alan Pang. And Ryan McAvoy is with Emily in New Haven. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. For Emily, Bazelon, and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate. Plus, uh, there's a really interesting essay by George Packer, wonderful writer, reporter. In It was published in The Atlantic. It is the Christopher Hitchens Prize, which I guess is a prize given to a writer every year. And it's, his, it's Packer's uh, essay about winning the Hitchens Prize this year. And it's a great essay. It's about Hitchens. And then it's about the state of being a writer today. So as a somebody who had the great pleasure of knowing Hitchens a bit and being his editor for a bit uh, in his last years. I was, of course, glad to read about it. And I thought Packer made some great points. Emily, do you want to give us a pricey? Yeah, sure. I mean, I will just say, like, I found this essay, like, really interesting and in the end, like, deeply frustrating and polarizing. So we should have a good argument about it. So basically, Packer's arguing, it starts with this homage to Hitchens, who, you know, Packer praises in part for disagreeing with him, or I guess actually (laughs) he points out they both supported the Iraq war, but Hitchens did so more full-throatedly than Packer, and yet 
like they stayed friends. And so this is supposed to be a tribute to um, people reaching across differences, writers reaching across differences in a way that Packer, I would say, is nostalgic for. Then he says that someone like Kitchens would have trouble getting work today, which I find to be like a completely risible statement for which there's no evidence. I wonder what you guys think. And then I think there's this really interesting criticism of writers who Packer says are are um, seek are exposing problems with dizzying moral clarity, and to me it was obvious that what he's talking about here are Ta-Nehisi Coates and other people who write in this vein where they are the 1619 Project that the New York Times is another example where you're kind of taking a different emphasis in your look in history and trying to get people to see things, particularly things that explain. Um, why people of color are still so disadvantaged in the country, see things that they didn't see before. Packer seems to, like, disapprove of this kind of writing and says what he wants is writers who don't know the answer to the question they ask at the beginning. And he, I think I think this is really a critique of, like, the most elite prize-winning work, right? Because there's lots of different kind of journalism. There is plenty of... Um, of reporting happening where people don't know um, the answer to the question when they start. But I think that what I take from this is Packer feels like the people who are getting the highest accolades in the profession are these people who are taking a strong stand and proving out an argument in their work as opposed to being more kind of nuanced and open-minded and thinking through complexity. That was the part of the article that I that in part really resonated for me because I do think it's really important to not always know the answer to the question when you start. And yet I just felt so much like George Packer was falling into this trap that, you know, I'm sorry, like especially um, white people and sometimes white men fall into of thinking that like the old norm was the correct norm because it was more comfortable for them. David, take me take me down if you want. Or John. I, I, I um, just pause it. I'm really <laughs> not feeling well. So my brain is not thinking Super oh, good. Advantage, I, Emily. <laughs> that's always, that's like, I'm that's taking a advantage, advantage of your ill state. Any, uh, anyone who's listened to the show for a while knows that the, that is, the, the you already weak, start 12 points ahead. You're the ill white male perspective on this problem. Yes. The ill white male perspective is not representative enough. <laughs> oh, John, um, you better help him here. No. He, well, he no, no. He can, he, he's fine. Even in his weakened state. He, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Actually, let yeah, him... maybe this is just some so log fake I, out. I didn't, I didn't, uh, Understand because I'm not smart like Emily that the that this was a criticism of Tanahasi and of the 1619 Project, both of which I I think Tanahasi is amazing. I think the 1619 Project is amazing. I thought what he was mostly talking about was the tendency to people to write for a tribe that you belong to, and that that's your that's how you start your process. A lot of writers start their process with the notion that they are writing for a group and to affirm the values of that group or criticize the values of the outgroup. And I do think that that is a illness of today. I think there's a, been a d- significant decline in the heterodoxy that's permitted in journalism. I mean, if you, you – I think there's been a significant decline in the heterodoxy that's permitted in journalism. I think that's – and, and it's for understandable reasons. Trump and Trump's awfulness makes it very hard to, to not uh, – like spend all your time yelling about Trump because he is is world historically awful and is causing epic damage. But it does take away a certain amount of playfulness and a certain amount of 
give and take and non-affirmation giving and non-moral um, posing that it used to be easier. And I do – and I think Hitchens was pretty good at that and and often you know, Hitchens was wrong about a lot of stuff. He was never uninteresting and he was pretty fearless about it. Uh, and I actually – I don't think there are writers like Hitchens around in quite the same quantity as there were. There are amazing writers. There are writers who are incredible. I mean, Ta-Nehisi, top of my list. Yeah, but um, Ta-Nehisi but is not, not in the, the Hitchens mold. I mean, he's you have not to in the Hitchens mold. People. I think that 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 mold, that mold of 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 heterodoxy and play, and let's see where it takes us, is one that is much harder to maintain these days, and and that's a loss. And I think I feel it particularly as a loss because that was the kind of magazine I wanted to edit when I was at Slate. And that's the kind of magazine I joined when I went to work at Slate. And I think that the people who built Slate had a lot of that in their, in how they were built. And it feels like there's less of it now. But and also Hitchens was a, was a victim of partially what he describes. I mean, his position on the war lost him lots and lots and lots and lots of adherence and then was used as a cudgel against him when he said anything else and anything else. So he was already... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. The delicious ice-cold taste of Dr. Pepper has a lasting effect on people. Lindsay from Sacramento said, Pro tip, 40 degrees is the perfect temperature for an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Why is 40 degrees the perfect temperature for Dr. Pepper? We brought in Sue from Duluth, Minnesota to tell us. Oh yeah, I know a thing or two about cold. Oh, that right there is the perfect kind of ice-cold for Dr. Pepper. Mm. I'd share that with my friend Nancy. She likes Dr. Pepper too, you know. My cold All right, that'll be all, Sue. Having a perfect temperature for your Dr. Pepper, it's a pepper thing. Inspired by real fan posts.